Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. Let's look at chapter 2. How do we think about God's will? Uh, And again, I think Kevin DeYoung helps us get started in a helpful place. He said, the will of God is one of the most confusing phrases in Christian vocabulary. Sometimes we speak about things happening according to God's will. Other times we talk about being obedient to and doing the will of God. And still other times we talk about finding the will of God. Um, The confusion is due to our using the phrase, the will of God, in at least three different ways, typified in the three previous sentences. And so what we're going to do in chapter 2 is we're going to look at three uses of the will of God. Then we're going to look at three things that help us get to the will of God. Then figure out how we put them together so that an individual consensus and headship and decision, decision-making, we know where we're going. And so, how is the phrase, God's will, used in the Bible? We're going to give us three ways. Uh, God's sovereign will, uh, God's moral will, and God's individual will. Now, what is God's sovereign will? This is what we're talking about when we say God is the author of history. Or when we say nothing happens without God's permission. Um, It's God's sovereign will that allowed him to inspire the prophets to foretell of Christ's birth in the end times centuries before they happened. It's God's sovereign will that lets him know the end from the beginning. It's God's sovereign will that lets us rest in the fact that there's nothing in our decision-making that's going to bump us down to God's plan B or God's plan C uh, for our life. Now, in your notebook, you'll see uh, I gave you several passages of Scripture that talk about God's sovereign will. But with each one of these, I'm going to take just a moment to illustrate how we wrongly use this aspect of God's will, because I think we often get messy in each of these areas, and how to rightly use it. Because I think us thinking clearly about this is very important if we're ever going to make decisions in a way that we can arrive at God's will. So how would we wrongly apply God's sovereign will? Well, we would wrongly apply that if we think of ourselves as robots living out some program that we don't see. Uh, We're living inside the matrix, and we somehow need to take a blue pill to get in there and figure out what's going on. Um, We wrongly think about God's sovereign will when we are flippant about important choices or risky actions that we take. Or if we use God's sovereign will to justify sin by saying, God knew I was going to do it, so I mean, it's not like I can do anything outside of God's will. Um, And so when we hear that, it becomes kind of clear to us that's using God's, more, uh, God's sovereign will as in competition with his moral will. Now, what is God's moral will? 
This refers to God's commandments and God's character. Uh, God's moral will is the ideal that defines how things should be on earth and how they will be in heaven. God's moral will is how the words good and bad get any meaning at all. Uh, God's moral will is why we experience guilt and why we value things that are pure more than things that are not pure. I mean, does it strike you as odd that this ring being pure gold makes it more valuable than things that are not pure? That is, if it had lots of other things in it. I think that's just part of our nature revealing that um, this moral aspect of God, His fingerprint on our lives, that we value things that are pure. Now, what would be a wrong use, a wrong conception of God's moral will? Well, if we think of God as this insecure deity who is arbitrarily imposing His preferences on us, or if we think of God's moral will as belonging to some particular time period, generation, or culture. I think if we're honest, we kind of think, ah, the Andy Griffith days, that's when things were right. As if that were God's will, that it was black and white, and we all went fishing with cane poles and corks. Um, or we think about a particular culture. Again, whether you really like American culture or don't like American culture, somehow that culture becomes to represent God's will in some way, and that would be wrong. Or if we thought um, that God's moral will allowed us to feel superior uh, to other people. Uh, God's moral will was never given to us, so we would feel self-righteous. Now, why, what do we do with God's moral will? Well, one, it's the clearest and most accessible part of God's will. We can come to God's moral will as the starting point for figuring out what He wants us to do. And also, uh, God's moral will uh, is meant to regulate our emotions. When we feel guilt, when we feel awe, when we feel longing, I mean, when you see somebody do something really good, and you think, ah, oh, I just, I like that, that was great. There's a sense in which when I see goodness in them, something that reflects the character of God, it just, it does something to my emotions. And God's moral will is supposed to have that kind of influence. And it's also just supposed to help us see God better. Because uh, one of the things that we see is that um, God's moral will is God's character expressed in behavioral terms. God's moral will is God saying, this is what I would do in these kinds of situations. This is, represents who I am. And so we should see God's character in God's moral law. And so then we come to God's individual will, this third type. And, and honestly, this is what most people want to know when we talk about God's will. This is where we ask questions like, what does God want me to do through the passions and experiences and talents that He's given me? It's when we ask, who does God want me to partner with in life? You know, in my marriage, in church, in friends, in job, who does He want me to partner with to accomplish the things that He wants me to do? Or how should I utilize the resources that God has given me? Things like time and money and talents in order to accomplish those things. 
That's God's individual will. Now, what would be some wrong uses of thinking about God's individual will? Well, God's individual will was not meant to be a point of insecurity or pride as we compare our life circumstances to somebody else. Uh, you know, it's not like a two packs of baseball cards and what did God give you and what did God give me? Ah, yours is worth more than mine or mine's better than yours. It, God's individual will wasn't meant to create that kind of pride or insecurity. Uh, God's individual will was not meant to spur this kind of fearful attempt to get the perfect option in every situation as if God were playing hard to get with us. And God's individual will should not be something that we assume would be fearful or dreaded in order to be appropriately spiritual. I mean, you hear some people talk about God's individual will, and they begin to think, unless it's something that really bad and unpleasant, then it's probably not what God wants me to do. And for reasons that we'll come to in just a minute, I, just, I think that's a very bad conception of God, and I think it's a very bad conception of God's will. So how should we rightly think about God's individual will? Yet, I think God's individual will should cause us to reflect on how God made us and how we can serve Him with those gifts. God, how did you make me and what did you want to do when you made me this way? Um, it, God, thinking about God's individual will should cause me to ask, God, how would you reflect your character in these circumstances? If one of God's overarching aspects of what it means to me to be in His will is that I am His ambassador, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.20, then what I'm doing is I'm, I'm representing Him in these circumstances. And so, God, how would you represent, what would your character, what would your agenda be here? Uh, that's a way that we should think about that. And we should expect that God's individual will should be, keep, should be in keeping with the passions and talents and interests that He gave us. I mean, God made me a certain way. He knit me together in my mother's womb. And what He intends to accomplish through me, it would only make sense, would be consistent with how He made me if He were a good and fair God. And so as we think about God's sovereign and moral and individual will, I'll give us just kind of one capstone statement here before we transition. Uh, and that would be, heaven is where these three things come together. That right now we live in a broken world uh, where these things can be at odds with one another. Where we don't see how they go together. And heaven is that place where God's moral will and His sovereign will and what each of us are doing are in harmony again. It's what Jesus was praying for and what He invited us to pray for when He said, God, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should long for that. Uh, as we see those three things coming together again. Now, if those are the three ways that we use God's will, we ask ourselves the question, what does God give us to help us get there? Uh, and I think the obvious answer would be the Bible. Uh, and, okay, well, within the Bible, and within the way that He made us, what does He give us to help us figure out what His will would be. And I want us to talk here about, about three things. He gives us negative commands. Uh, don't do this. Thou shalt not. He gives us positive commands. And He gives us preference. And so let's look at those for just a moment. Uh, negative commands. 
These are things that God tells us don't do. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't kill, don't steal. Um, and, and it's pretty clear. Uh, and in a seminar like this, this is not a place where we're going to debate, uh, do we get to choose? Uh, I'm going to assume that in a, in a setting where we are wanting a gospel-centered marriage, that obeying God is the delight of our heart. And if it's not, then we feel conviction and that we would pray, God, I know this isn't right and it's something that I want. Guide me differently. But I do think a question that we ask is when we think of God's negative commands, is it most effective to think about them as this fence that goes around our choices, that within that fence we get to play and do whatever we want? Or is God's negative commands kind of this solid core from which we build out in order uh, to discern God's will? Now, I think both pictures are accurate and they have advantages. I think one is more advantageous than the other, but I'll just let you chew on that for a moment. So then we come to God's positive commands. Uh, these are less clear. And because they're less clear, uh, they're slightly annoying. And James Petty helps us be willing to admit that. He says God's positive commands are open-ended. For this reason, there will never be any system for discerning, discerning the will of God that reduces obedience to a set of behaviors and procedures for every situation. We sinners do not like open-ended commands. We can't be in control with them, especially when the commands are hard to fulfill because of our sin. And so think of two commands that are related to finances. Do not steal. Got it. If I didn't earn it, it doesn't belong to me. Unless somebody gives it to me as a gift, I shouldn't take it. We're good. Be generous. With who? How often? To what degree? What percentage? Uh, there's so much need in the world. Do I, every time I feel bad and I see a commercial with a hungry kid, do I, do I sign up for that? Every time I drop me, how, how much am I generous? And uh, this is where I think we begin to realize I can't do everything that God commands me to do all of the time. And we're going to come back and clean this mess up in just a moment, but I want to let that mess sit for a little while so we can be uncomfortable. But I will make this statement. How we approach these positive commands that are more than we can do in every given moment will determine whether our temptations center on exhaustion or excuses. If my approach is, if God calls me to do it, I need to do all of it, and I've just got to get it done, I've got to find some way then chances are the temptations that I face, I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to begin to view God as unfair. I'm going to begin to get cynical. And a lot of my temptation is going to center around exhaustion. If, on the other hand, I get flippant, I say, I can't do it all, so I mean, I just whatever I feel like doing, I'm going to do, then chances are the temptations that I face in following God's will are going to be much more built around excuses. And we just need to know that about ourselves, and we need to know that about our spouse, and we need to be able to be honest with one another about it. And then we have areas of preference. Uh, and I would go so far as to say, and I hope by the time we finish you would agree with me, there are many decisions to which the Bible does not intend to speak. God did not intend to become the grand regulator. Uh, God made us with particular passions and talents and interests, uh, and the 
question we're asking is how much freedom does God give us and how does he want us to use that freedom? And that's where we're going to turn in just a moment. But in order, we've got these three pieces, God's negative commands, God's positive commands, and preference. What I'm going to say is that there's a certain order that I think it is wise and best to always use. We should start with God's negative commands. If something's off limits, we just need to lay it off limits. God's positive commands, we need to know His heart and agenda. And then we come to our preferences. And then we kind of express from there. And so that is always the order. But the questions are going to become, how do we fit that order together? How do, they, how do we make this puzzle fit in a way that's functional? And Kevin DeYoung I think helps us see one of the ways that, that is very sincere, but often not very functional. He says, God does have a specific plan for our lives, but it is not one that he expects, to, expects us to figure out before we make a decision. What I am saying is this, that we should stop thinking of God's will like a corn maze or a tightrope or a bullseye or a choose-your-own-adventure novel. Uh, many of us fear we'll, make the, we'll take the wrong job, we'll buy the wrong house, declare the wrong major, marry the wrong person, and suddenly our lives will blow up and we'll be out of God's will, doomed to spiritual, relational, and physical failure for the rest of our life. Now, uh, I think uh, one of the things contributes to that is the way that we see the relationship uh, between God's negative, positive commands and our preferences. And that conception is what I'll label the bullseye approach. And so if we'll go to that slide where we can see those three circles. Uh, and, and in this model, we start with God's negative commands as kind of that big parameter. And we learn everything that's off limits. And so within that, we then have uh, fewer options. And then we look at all of God's positive commands. And then that limits our options some more. But then within that inner circle... We've got this really weird leftovers where there's lots of things that we could do, but one of those things that is God's perfect will for our life. And we get to that spot where we begin to think, this isn't bad, it's, you know, it's kind of God's will for my life, but it's got God's perfect will, and then, ah, what do I do with that mess? And we, whether we say it this way or not, we begin to view God as this passive-aggressive deity that even once we've done everything that he's told us to do, that somehow there were other things that we were just supposed to know. And if we didn't figure it out, then he's going to somehow be upset with us, not be in full relationship with us, that we're not going to get the full blessing, and we're just going to be kind of at odds with him for the rest of our life, going, God, what gives? Now, if we don't get caught in that trap, we get caught in a different trap. Uh, where we begin to think we are, we, we're not focused on the center, we're focused on the edges. And we begin to think, I, for eternal happiness, for heaven, I kind of have to make God happy. But for temporal happiness, I need to get as close to the edge as I can because that's where happiness happens. And I've got to find that sweet spot between the two. And I think that's the epitome of what James was talking about in chapter 1, 6 through 8, where he talks about a double-minded person. And so hear me simply say, 
finding God's will is not a pressure-based target practice where we're trying to hit the center of the bullseye. Now, let me illustrate that just a little bit here with an example that I think many of us may be familiar with. Uh, you may have seen the movie uh, Chariots of Fire. Kind of old school, the soundtrack for the Energizer Bunny commercials coming off of this movie. Uh, and in that movie, Eric Little is the main character. Uh, his father was a missionary, uh, and he's a very gifted runner who's trying to make the decision, do I go to the mission field uh, in China and share the gospel with those who have never heard the gospel, or do I take this opportunity to train and run in the Olympics? And if we view God's will as a bullseye, and we ask ourselves, how would Eric Little think through this decision? Well, maybe he goes to the mall, and he's saying, either I'm going to buy a Bible, and that's going to tell me I need to go to the mission field, or I'm going to buy some shoes. I got $37 in my wallet, and he goes and he looks, and the Bible that he wants is $50, and the shoes that he really wanted are on sale for $36.95. Isn't it obvious? I had a friend in college who was on his like second date with a girl. He called me and he was like, you won't believe this. I am at a red light going to her house and the car in front of me has her initials on the license plate. What else could that mean? They went on three dates. It meant that's what the license plate in the state of Tennessee were for like everybody in the county. Dude, wise up. Um, maybe Eric's reading his Bible and he comes to that passage in Acts where... The, uh, Philip runs to the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he's trying to figure out what that means. Does that mean I need to run? I mean going to the Olympics and then do missions? The Ethiopian eunuch and take the gospel somewhere it hasn't been? Or does that mean I just need to run to the do missions? I, I don't know. Or maybe he's just evaluating. My father was a missionary and is this just me trying to live up to my father's expectations and I want to be you know, the kind of son he would be proud of or... Maybe, you know, in the multitude of counselors, lots of wisdom. And so I listen to all my friends, and they're saying, Dude, if I had the chance to go to the Olympics, I would. I think you ought to do it. And somehow in the midst of that, he's just supposed to pick out whatever it is that God wanted him to do. Again, I don't think that's the way that we ought to approach this. And I think Gary Friesen helps us see that that is not how God leads his church. And he does that by showing this progression of how God has led his people. He says, in the progress of God's revelation, in the progress of the Bible, God has moved from a highly structured system of regulations governing a wide variety of specific behaviors. Again, read Leviticus where you get, you know, you can eat the thing that has a cloven hoof but not one with a split hoof. And, you know, you get all of these kind of regulations to a system where behavior is to be determined by principles and governed by a personal relationship. And he says, get this. If a believer is free to choose, he is also required to choose. So we get to a different set of circles where we flip the order. And in all honesty, in the first two circles, not much changes. Uh, we just make them inside out. And we view God's negative commands as kind of core, that solid part, like on a baseball. Uh, this is where I know what God's will is. And then... Outside of that is God's positive commands where he's given me his character and his agenda and where I need to go with this. And then out from that, I am free to choose. And instead of living in fear, I almost get overwhelmed by the number of options that are available to me. 
And before we go with what to do with that, uh, let's go back to the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would really recommend it to you, although I'm about to blow the ending for you. Um, Eric Little, he, he gets to his point of decision. And this is the famous line in the movie. He says, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. And he decided to go to the Olympics and then to the mission field. Now, in light of that, I want us to go back to a quote from Henry Blackaby and see how we make sense of that in light of what we're saying is good right here. Because I think initially we're going to feel some tension. This is where Henry Blackaby said, what, what is God's will for my life is not the best question to ask. I think the right question is simply, what is God's will? Once I know God's will, then I can adjust my life to Him and His purposes. The focus needs to be on God and His purposes, not on my life. And so when Eric Little says, God made me fast, I think we hear in that a focus on God, but God as designer. God made me fast. And when I run, I feel His pleasure. When I do the thing that God made me to do, there's just something wells up inside of me and says, this is good. And so I think what we see is that God leads us as creator as much as He does as king. As creator, God leads us through design. As king, God leads us through decree. And that's why when we look at these circles, where there, and there's lots of arrows pointing out from them, that there are lots of arrows. Not to say that there's lots of different things that are right and wrong, but the way that God made me, and the way that He wants to express His character through my design, my personality, my passions, my interests, my opportunities, my setting, is going to be different from yours. And so because of that, I can rest in the fact that God did not call me to be a medical doctor. I think I'm a decently smart guy and like to think I could get through medical school, but I'm pretty sure God did not call me to be a medical doctor because the sight of blood causes me to want to pass out. Uh, in my college psychology class, for some reason, they felt the need to show a birthing video. Uh, and I made it through about 37 minutes of that video before I could just tell Brad was about to leave the building. Uh, either I was going to fall out or I was going to walk out. And so I packed my bags and I walked out of the class and the professor was like, this is not like Brad. He normally does not leave class early. And I got as far as just outside the door before everything went dark and I fell out. Uh, and my friend beside me raised his hand and said, dude, <laughs> Hamburg just fell out in the hallway. And so right at that moment, the bell rang and the nurse was there and I was mortified. But again, the sight of blood, somebody breaks their finger and it's been over and I just, I can't handle that. And I can say, if God wanted me to be a doctor, he would give me more of a stomach for that. Um, and so God's design is one of the ways that he leads us. Now, this doesn't mean that God doesn't give us personal promptings. I just think a big part of it is through how he made us. So if you said, what would it sound like for God to lead me? Uh, I would give you this dialogue. This is purely Brad Hambrick writing something on paper. This is not Bible. But I think this is what it would sound like. God would say, I've told you what things are destructively off limits. And I've given you a mission statement. 
you'll find that in the great commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And I've given you the great commission. Take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Baptizing people in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And do as much of it as you can. I've shown you my character throughout the Bible. You know who I am and how I want you to represent me to people. And with that, I've blessed you with certain talents and passions and interests. Now within that, you're free. Go, enjoy life, and make as big of an impact as you can for my kingdom. Go, change the world, and have fun doing it. And so everything that we talk about from this point forward has that heart to it. And so with that, I think James Petty takes us that next step. He says, when we need guidance, it usually involves a situation in which basic alternatives are legitimate. We only need guidance when the options we're considering are both good. In other words, in this area of Christian liberty, God has revealed no preference about our choice between this or that. In this case, we can really do either one. But He is not indifferent towards our motives about why we choose. Our motives for everything we do are always deeply and spiritually relevant to our God. And so in the extended manual that I give you, I take you through several passages of Scripture, uh, things like Acts 15 and 1 Corinthians 6 and 1 Corinthians 16, where I think we see the New Testament church being led in this way. Uh, Now, if you ask me, what should we get from this chapter? I would say kind of two things we got. We got some clarity on what God's will means, and we got some clarity on what the pieces are and how they fit together. Now, what we learned then is that we are free to choose, but not how to choose. Uh, That's what we're going to cover in the next three chapters. How do we make choices as individuals through consensus and headship and submission? So at this point, if this seminar was all that you had, I would say right now we are really good college freshmen. Uh, We have been launched out with a whole bunch of freedom that we don't know what to do with. And so chances are we're either going to like fail out of school or we're going to have a lot of work to do on our GPA from this point forward. Um, But our goal in the final chapters is learn to steward this freedom that God gave us so that we could deeply enjoy the life that He made us to enjoy for His glory in a way that draws us closer together as a couple.